Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I'm your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I've interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation about the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's S-E-E, changehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 56, with the title, Busting the Myths of Intergenerational Stereotypes. And I have the absolute honour and privilege to welcome Henry Rose Lee. Henry describes herself as an intergenerational consultant who speaks, consults and coaches on how different generations think, communicate and work. And when I asked Henry to describe her superpower, she said that she is face blind. That is, she has prosopagnosia and that makes her awesome during one-to-one or group conversations because she can hear more and focus more on how people say something, how they breathe, what they focus on, and perhaps far more than a more visual person can. Wow. Hello, Henry. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I've been wanting to come on this show for some time, so I'm really excited to be here and honoured to be selected. So thanks for that, Joe. Yes. And it's the first, my first podcast episode of 2022 so you are the first so brilliant it's such an honor that you've had the time to grace me with your presence so thank you so much so Henry, i know that you specialize in uh, intergenerational workplaces so what are the myths and stereotypes that we all hold around generations I think the myths and stereotypes are across all generations. So often younger generations think that the older generations um, are stereotyping them. But actually, younger generations also stereotype older. Older generations also stereotype younger generations. So for me, those myths are across all age groups. And they're myths about things like when we're older, we're no good, we're past our sell-by date, we can't do innovation. Or myths like when we're very, very young, we've got no experience, we don't know how to do things. Um, And really, the truth is somewhere in between. It is true that Uh, As human beings, whatever age we are, we're going to have a life cycle. So we're born, we grow, we have some success and experience, we fade, we die. All humanity is going to do that. Sorry about that. But that's the way it is. But therein lies the challenge about myths, because it's too easy for older people to have a go at younger people and say that, um, you know, they're not good enough and they're snowflakes and they don't know what the world is like. And it wasn't like that in my day. And the reverse of that are the myths that young people can have where, you know, if you're six years old, then somebody who's 20 is really old, in your view. If you're 20 years old, then somebody's 60, you're looking at them and thinking, why aren't you dead? You're so old. So the challenge with myths is really around the fact that we all have them and the best thing for us to do is to do exactly what you're doing joe which is to look at inclusion and belonging and connection and engagement so that we learn more about each other whether we're older or younger generations and accept and celebrate differences and variances rather than being um, somebody who's older who's having a go at younger generations because it wasn't like that in my day or someone who's younger looking at someone older and thinking well you can't possibly do innovation and you don't understand the world of today because neither of those is true they're both a myth yeah because you hear these uh, kind of statements that gen z are digital native how millennials on that cusp of digital, if you're Gen X, then you were born at a point, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that really does sort of kind of put these hard and fast barriers where this, there's no absolute there. It's like anything, there's a spectrum. And it, just because you're, I was born in the mid sixties. I'm, most people would argue that I'm pretty digital. I'm pretty digitally switched on computer background. So to say to, say to me that I'm not tech savvy is 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 inaccurate but i'm not a gamer i don't own an xbox a playstation i don't own a game boy or whatever the latest technology is so i i don't play with gadgets in that way but i use technology from a business perspective so you could argue that i'm not i'm not with it when it comes to 
the modern gaming world, but I am with it as far as technology is concerned. So, yeah, these these statements we make about people and we box people off and pigeonhole people, it can be really problematic from a, a hiring and a business point of view, can't it? It certainly can. And one of the challenges that I face as an intergenerational specialist is that people say to me, you're wrong, Henry, to work with labels and call uh, people baby boomers or Generation X or millennials or Generation Z. You're wrong to label us. But actually, what I do when I work with clients is say, I'm just using those labels as parameters for us to talk about how the world has changed in in my lifetime. And so I often say to clients, listen, while we're working together, we're going to label the hell out of things but we're not going to do that outside when we talk to real people we're just going to do it in a learning facility or when we're discussing ideas so I'm I'm all too aware that actually when I label things people can look at me and go why is she labeling we're not all like that for example the classic one I get is somebody who says to me well if baby boomers are born between 1946 and 1964 and I was born in 1965 does that make me a generation x or a baby boomer you know, because I'm right on the cusp. And I always say it makes you whatever you want it to make you. You know, you don't have to live by that label. But I do work with labels because there are some differences. And you've actually highlighted one already where you've said that you're tech savvy, you're a digital native yourself, but you don't necessarily get into gaming. You could probably do it really well, but you don't really want to. And that's a generational feature. So there are things called periodic factors and cohort factors in generational theory. So periodic factor is big world events like technology advances, wars, famine, pestilence, COVID, Brexit, all of those things. Those are big world factors and they impact everybody of any age, but in a different way. So if you're age between, um, say, 20 and 70 and you're of working age, then Brexit in the UK might have an impact on your work. If you're under 20, you may be unaware of it. Or you may have a vague idea that you can't always get strawberries because the supply chain's got a, a problem. But apart from that, these periodic factors, these world factors impact every generation, but the impact is different depending on their age. Because as we age... We get more emotional intelligence. That is true and proven research-wise. We get more emotionally intelligent and we also get more experience or, if you like, we've had more cock-ups. You know, the older we get, the more we make mistakes, the more we learn. So those things are true periodic factors. They actually do happen. A cohort factor is, if you like, gaming. So anybody who is probably um, under the age of 25 knows all about Fortnite and they're going to play it and they're going to be quite addicted to it and they're going to be aware that it's addictive. Their mates are addicted to it. They're going to talk about it. They're going to know those things. Anybody over 25 might say, I'm sorry, what's Fortnite? Or say, I would never touch that. So there are things called a cohort factor which impact generations and specifically either a generation between um, the beginning and start of their birth dates roughly or that um, impact only a part of that generation. So I'll give you an example, Snapchat. Snapchat, for anybody who's over 30, if they haven't got children, they've got no idea what you're talking about. They also don't use it. And once they see it, they think it's the most ridiculous thing because it's a little bit like WhatsApp that we all know about, except that the messages appear once they're open and read. They're around for a few seconds and then they disappear forever. And for most business people, they would think, well, why the hell would I want it to disappear forever if it wasn't a drug lord? You know, how does that make sense? But Snapchat is something that 13 to 18 year olds at the moment are very interested in. By the time they're about 18, they're no longer interested in it because they too recognize that actually it's just a phase. It's something that they do. They'd quite like to have some videos that they can see again and again, not just appear once and be gone. And by the way, although um, Snapchat doesn't like to admit to this, actually people start to get on Snapchat when they're about eight years old. Now, legally, you're only supposed to be allowed on these things at about the age of 13. Same for TikTok, same for WhatsApp and so on. You know this thing. But what often happens is that very young kids are getting involved in it and a mate will get them on. And so often it's between eight 
and about 15. And by the time they're 15, they're too cool and don't want to be into Snapchat. So that's a cohort factor, something that every other generation is either unaware of or totally disinterested in. But for a period of time, for some people, they are very interested in it. And that's what allows me to use those labels when I'm talking to clients. Because if I explain to them in enough detail what might be a cohort factor for a particular generation between X years and X years, of course, it isn't true for everybody, but it is true enough across the bell curve so that you can actually use that information in order to have a good discussion about what's my workforce like now, what is going to be taking their focus and attention. If they're under the age of 25, do I have to think about how distractible they are because they game or do I have to think about their focus? Because all of us have problems focusing, but the older we get, the better we are at forcing ourselves to focus and the better we are at getting into flow because we've learned how to do it. So again, that's another generational discussion I can have. So whilst I raise my hands up and say, yes, to label things is absolutely wrong. When I'm working with clients, we use the labels to help us look at specific areas where there may be some challenges within their workforce. Yeah, I was just as you're talking about that, I was, I was thinking about my daughter, and she is 30 um, in six days' time, five days' time. And, and she has always been hypercritical of the amount of stuff, you know, junk or we've that we've accumulated in various lofts, double garages, around the back of the shed, that kind of stuff. And she's and she's always had this kind of like transient relationship with stuff. You know, as you were saying, the Snapchat, read it, gone. So she's she's never formed a relationship with stuff. But now she's getting into that age when she's in her late thirties. She's now thinking about a family. And I, she's, she was proud to announce to me the other day that she put some shelves in her utility cupboard. And I said, shelves? Isn't that for putting stuff on? She went, hmm. Uh, and then she, she's proudly got a new wardrobe with more storage of it. I said, look, you're starting to accumulate stuff because you now realise that you need to have something in your life to hang on to. You, you've, you, you, you've got planning for children. You've got memories, memories you don't want to lose, and memories need to be stored somewhere. So she, she's now appreciating, and I can see her now going, oh, yeah, okay, the clutter is developing, although she's still vehemently opposed to over clutter so I, I see that that what you're saying there about snapchat and the disposable transient nature of of stuff um yeah i, I see that echo and I, I think the other thing you were saying there was around um you know, you learn from cock-ups and I, I think that comes with learning to be accountable doesn't it you know I, I look back at my life and i can put my finger on three or four events over the last 30 40 years i've gone hmm that was a major learning exercise and you know one of those was in my teens one of those was in my 20s one of those was in my 30s and they were all different in their own way because i'd learnt and i thought i was invincible again and i had to learn again and realize i was invincible again and learn again and then learn again so there's different phases of your life and your maturity and the accountability kicks in that yes you you know i'm i'm, I'm approaching I, I, keep, I used to say I was in my early 50s, and I thought, well, I used to say I was in my mid-50s. Now, I have to admit I'm in my late 50s. So when you time to get to your late 50s, you've got a whole load of learning that's occurred, hasn't it? Haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's interesting about what you've just described is that's what I call a life cycle factor, that as we get older, of course, we do change and develop. The big difference, though, in intergenerational work that I do is that we're noticing that younger people are, glowing, are growing up more slowly. So they are um, getting stuff more slowly. And there are very clear reasons for that uh, in globally. So westernized, industrialized societies were really hammered by the last global recession in 2007-8. And really, until 2020, in real life, in real terms, salaries kept going down while costs kept going up. Now, in 2020, because of the what some people call great resignation and what other people call the great reshuffle, with lots of people thinking about, do I want this job and is it for me and do I want to change jobs? So in 20 
age 20, some salaries did go up. But actually, in real time, the youngest generations today, people under the age of 35, are actively actually poorer than uh, Generation X when they were 35, and certainly than baby boomers when they were 35. It's not that anybody did anything wrong. It's the society ebbs and flows and things change and recessions have an impact and, and global impacts change how we earn money and change whether we feel poorer or richer. And so what you're describing with your daughter, and I think it's absolutely brilliant, is perfect, is that probably in her youth, which might not have happened so much in your youth or mine, was that she was a, a queen of experience. She would spend her money on leisure, on going out, on connecting, perhaps on travel, um, maybe clothes, but she wouldn't have spent her money on stuff. So she might not have had a house or she might not have had very much um, in her rented accommodation. As we get older, though, we do settle, but we are finding that our youngest generations today are growing up later. They're uh, spending capital money, so a car, a house, that sort of thing, much later. And they're staying young for longer. I read an amazing report in about 2018 from the BBC, and I laughed. And then I thought, oh my God, it's serious. And what it said was that the BBC has now decided that the age of adulthood is 30. And I thought, well, I wish it had been 30 when I was a kid because I had my first house at 23 and that seemed quite normal. Most of my friends in good jobs were having houses at around the age of between 23 and about 25, 26. Now what we're seeing is that people are getting into housing if they're going to find, ever find enough money to get a house, they're into their 30s. So you can see what I mean, that this in, in intergenerational terms, we can see that some things have changed. So even if we take all the labels away, what we can see is that people who are younger today are struggling much more with a number of issues. And of course, the biggest issue of all is that you and I, Joe, we didn't grow up with social media. It didn't exist. And so when we came to social media, we came to it with more emotional intelligence, hopefully, uh, with more of those cock ups, we've learned more things, uh, hopefully. And what happens is if you're very, very young, you haven't got that experience, you haven't got the emotional intelligence, it's very easy to get sucked in. And it's very easy to get addicted to social media. And the biggest change that I'm seeing in the workforce today is that for older generations, they have two key communities. One is friends and family. And the second key community is their workplace. But for younger generations, their first community is friends and family. But then their second community is their social media feed, which means that they don't build the same connection and community with the workplace that you and I uh, managed to build when we were their age because we didn't have the distraction of social media. There wasn't a glass door review that said, what do you think about that company? Or oh, I don't like the bosses or I'm not paid enough. And now what we find is that younger generations in the workplace are more likely to talk to their peer group in their social media feed to ask their advice about applying for a job or asking for a pay rise or should I stay there or should I go than they would coming to a manager inside an organization and talk to them, that's a big step change. So in intergenerational work that I do, I often have to point out to older generations that the younger generations simply don't have the connection or even the loyalty that older generations had when they were their age because of social media, because that tribe inside is not in the workforce, it's in the social media feed. Exactly a point I was trying to talk to some recruiters about a couple of months ago where they were talking about this business is now trying to create this culture and they're desperate to get people back in the office or or create this cultural stickiness. And yet, you know, the, the big buzz in hiring is don't hire for culture fit, hire for culture ad. So I'm saying, well, hang on a minute, you, you're saying with one breath, don't hire for culture fit, and then you're trying to in, instill the value of your culture. I said, I would rather have a culture like a pension, but I can have my own culture and I can take it wherever I go. I, my culture is I go to the gym, I do my local community stuff, I, I, I build my culture where I live, and then I come to work uh, for something funny called work. I don't need to get my culture from work. So what I think I personally believe is that employers need to recognize that people will bring their own culture. They don't need to give them culture, whether that's an onboarding pack of some socks, a cup and a calendar, whatever they do these days. 
They need to find something better about how you treat people, how you pay people, how you reward people, how you make them feel without necessarily giving them this fake culture, this rah-rah, happy, clappy stuff. I think that's, that's the difference. The younger people have their culture and they want to bring that in and be accepted of who they are, but they also want to take it with them. And I think that stickiness needs to be found in a different way with organizations or just respect the fact that people are going to job hop or they're going to, I mean, one of the other, I'm sure you know this, one of the other characteristics is younger generations have multiple income streams. They've got a YouTube channel, they're monetizing stuff. My son mines Bitcoins in his spare time and he's got an investment portfolio of Bitcoins. He, he, he owns two whole Bitcoins, which he mined when he was at college five, ten years ago. Um, much to my daughter's uh, disgust that he didn't cut her in on the deal at the time. So he's sitting on 100 grand worth of Bitcoin that he mined at college for nothing sort of thing. Um, So the mentality now is you don't – a lot of people are looking for different things from work, and generally it's called work and it's called money. It's called reward, not gym and pool tables and beanbags. Yeah, I mean, I think that work is splintering um, and really COVID is going to be a line in the sand. And for different generations, it really depends on a number of factors. So I take uh, into account everything that you've said, that that actually for a lot of people, work is a a multifaceted thing because they they have a side hustle or a slashy, they've got a cottage industry, they're doing something online and they've also got a job or they've got a number of part-time jobs. That is happening. But I, I think it's even more nuanced and subtle than that and even more cataclysmic. If you think about COVID, it was the first time that we were all forced to work from home and that's a line in the sand we can't come back from and it's not just younger people it's people of all ages who suddenly were sitting at home thinking do I even like my job or you know is this all there is uh, do I still want to be married to this person or live with them you know what what what's what hobbies have I got so there's a whole load of stuff going on and I think what we're going to do is we're going to look back in a few years and think about the fact that uh, in 2020 2021 we had a big change that was perhaps um, due or overdue that we hadn't had for 100, 150 years. And that's the way that we work. And I'm with you, but I think it's more splintered and I'll try and explain it quickly. First of all, we got two tiers of workers because about 60% of workers globally still have to go into work to do work. Frontline workers, care workers, logistics, distribution, factory, warehouse, bricks and mortar retail, you know, restaurants, hotels, they have to go into work to do work. There's none of this hybrid or working from home. They have to go into work. That is going to continue to exist. And it's still the majority of workers, about 60% globally. And that is true globally, not just the UK. Then you've got the workers who are moving towards this hybrid model where it'll be some at home, some which is going to be back in the office. And then you've got remote workers. So if you look at technology and media companies, uh, uh, the CEO of Twitter was um, Jack Dorsey. I think he's just stepped down. But he said that everybody could work from home forever. Whereas if you look at financial services, you've got Barclays, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Citigroup going, we got to get people back in, otherwise it, it we're going to lose our culture. And to your point about culture, I think you're absolutely right that our younger generations don't see work in terms of I'm going to join because that's a community and they'll give me my culture but but I think it's also possible that as they get older as we all age you get that symbolism of stuff you get that symbolism of wanting to settle and you get that need for more parameters and if I was to sum up what I'm talking about now I would say that our world is in confusion And if you're under the age of 30, it's really confusing because not only have you probably got an online business or your mate has and you're doing something like that and you might be doing a a side hustle or a slash, you know, something part time. You're also looking for a job because you need money and you need it now. So you're going for a job for money. And the chances are that you will tell your boss that you want job security, you want a career and you want learning and development. But you're also thinking in the back of your head about what if my online business takes off? And actually, I love doing that. So there's this confusion that young people are really struggling with. And I think organizations have a job to do to A, recognize that struggle and then B, look at it in terms of the industry as to whether there is a groundswell like with technology to do remote work. 
in which case I think an awful lot of people are comfortable with that, or whether it's some other kind of business where uh, traditionally, conventionally, like financial services, you don't do remote work. They will probably go for a hybrid model. So it's, it's too simplistic to say it's going to be the same for everybody. It's going to be a whole load of different things for different industries, different ages and different people. And we're all a bit confused because, of course, you've got older people looking at it going, what just happened? I've even got clients who are saying to me, well, you know, once COVID has died down and we all think it's just going to be a cold and it goes back into the normal statistics of have you got a flu or have you got a cold, everybody will come back into the office and I'm saying, no, they won't. It's it's prospect theory. And of course, the biggest change of all is the youngest generations who were working face to face or in a place and then were continuing to work if they hadn't lost their job or got furloughed. If they were continuing to work from home, guess what? They got a pay rise. They got a pay rise because they didn't have to travel into work. If you think about commuting costs and time, it's higher for somebody who's younger and lower for somebody who's older. It's just statistically true. So you've got younger people going, I don't want to go back into the office. But here's the other confusing bit. They do want to go back into the office. So they do and they don't want to go back. They don't want to go back because they had their pay rise and they don't want to spend money on commuting anymore. And they're a bit nervous. But also they want to go back because they're missing socialization learning and development face-to-face, looking over the boss's shoulder or somebody who's a bit older and wiser who might be able to help them, trotting down the corridor to have a chat with somebody, the happenstance of just learning something new because you're with other people, creativity, innovation, collaboration. There are a whole load of things that take place when we are face-to-face that are much more difficult to happen, to occur, even naturally or in a forced measure, when we're not together and when we're working remotely. So, um, yeah, it's it's a difficult one to talk about because there's so much there. But I think, watch this space, what we're going to see is um, no return to how we were in 2019. Things will be different. I'm not quite sure how, but I think those those things that I've outlined will be a part of it. It's interesting what you're saying there because, I mean, my own personal view, my own theory, is that often you hear this kind of this this workflow. People need to collaborate. People only we have water cooler conversations. We have mentoring. We have we have the rah rah sales calls. We have the listening into people. We have this all this kind of socialization. So the answer to those equation is always we need to go back to the office. I say, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. What I'm saying is that isn't the only answer. Sometimes you go back to the beginning and say, what's the requirement? What's the output? What's the need? And then the answer may well be it's better in the office. But the answer may also be, can we put technology into that? We we talk about the metaverse. We talk about AI, VR, augmented reality, all these kind of technologies. And there are solutions out there, technology solutions, where you, you can wear headphones and goggles as a, maybe as a call center or as a sales rep you actually get piped everybody else's conversation in the background so you still get the buzz and with the right technology you, you can tap someone on the shoulder and say can you just have a quick listen on my call can we have a chat about this so i think as technology increases some of the we must go back to the office as the only solution will, will phase and when we look at you know we talk about um Gen Z, Gen Alphas, they're emerging into a world where their schooling, their colleging, their universitying has been online. And they, they come out, they've got a degree, they've got qualification. Okay, not in the way we did. So they're entering the workplace knowing that they can do a lot of the stuff remotely. And again, they're, if you look at my son, he, he's a gamer. He spends all of his waking hours when he's not when he's not cooking, eating, or doing something else uh, on gaming. And he's got a network of friends all around the all around the globe in different languages, different countries. So to him, his network is global, it's diverse, and it's anyone. So he, he doesn't he doesn't need to interact because that's his 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 natively online. So I think yes, there's no absolute, but what we, I think I believe we're seeing a generation now where they're entering the world comfortable without having face-to-face. I'm not saying that I, I like it, I just dislike it. It's just I, I believe the reality there's going to be a proportion of people who are quite comfortable being a hermit. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Um, technology uh, is always the first thing to come. Um, I'm desperately trying to remember the name of the person who did a piece of research on it, and I can't. I can remember her first name was Heather, but that's not going to help. But basically, what's what's interesting in, in this person's research is that they show 
uh, technology always gets there first. Then individuals pick up that technology. Then businesses pick up that technology. And then finally, government policy goes, oh, God, yeah, there's this technology. So that's usually the way that thing that new things are adopted, particularly with technology. So you're right, technologies already exist where we could do that. But we've got some challenges. And those challenges are often in um, SMEs who are smaller and, and physically don't have the money or the opportunity to use that technology yet until it gets you know lower in price. You get the big boys and girls who absolutely do embrace this technology. And I think that's totally an answer for a number of organisations. Plus, you have the generational piece where some of the older generations really worry about technology because they're used to face-to-face. They're used to that way of seeing control. If you're in the office, I can control you. I can see what you're doing. I'm happy with that. So I think all of these go into the mix. And I think the final thing of all is that um, uh, pre-COVID, across a couple of years, I did surveys with young people who were the age between, say, 16 and 19, um, who were uh, going on for further education or into an apprenticeship, just to ask them about their attitudes and things like that. And it'd be great if I could go and do them again. But what I was finding is that face-to-face is still important and The opposite to that is that they are more hermits because they gain more and they do more asynchronously and they do more online and in their social media feeds. And so their communication skills face-to-face, their telephone skills, their writing skills are underdeveloped if you relate those to older people. That doesn't mean that's right or wrong or good or bad. We're just noticing the difference. But we're hearing from young people, at least pre-COVID, saying, do you know what? If I had something really important to do, I'd want to see my mate face to face and talk to them. So there is still the need for this. And I've got um, an 18 year old, sorry, 21 year old niece who's in her second year of uh, university in Bristol. And she's done one year already, which was completely remote. And I called her yesterday, actually, and said, how are you doing? And she said, I hate it. I love the course. I love my tutor. I never see anybody. I never talk to anybody and I want to go in and see what other people are doing. I want to ask their advice. And when I email them or WhatsApp them, they don't come back quickly and everybody's off with COVID. And what she was saying, and she's 21, you know, she's she's, um, very much a Generation Z. And she's saying, I really miss that face-to-face connection. Doesn't want a lot. And I think what we'll see is that people don't need as much. They can do loads of things asynchronously or IRL in real life with using AI, you know, or VR. They can use all of those things. But I think we will find that some of the challenges to well-being, to connection, to communication and social skills are denigrated. People are finding that it's harder when they're younger and they haven't had an opportunity to go out and about and see people. So again, I think it's quite a complex subject and that's exactly what I talk to clients about. See what you're saying there is that, as you say, that we're losing writing skills, communication skills, telephone skills, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mean, I've lost the ability to write a lot with a pencil or a pen. In fact, if I have to write something, it's kind of like, oh, <laughs> I get mistake. You know, like you used to get exams when you're at school, writing 13 pages on an English essay or something. Uh, so I, I really detest writing. And I, I, my writing is now diagonal across a page. It's now note form. It's now scruffy, untidy. I don't worry about spelling mistakes. I just write down phonetically what I want to say. So I, I as a, as a, as a, an early Gen Xer, a late boomer, whichever way you want to look at me, um, I've already de-evolved my writing skills. Uh, so I can imagine, does it matter? And, and I, you know, we, we see the pedants on Facebook talking about grammar and it should be a, a this or a that. And I think, does it matter in the, in the scale of the world of, of, of the evolution of English language, whatever language it may be? Does it really matter? Can I be understood? Do people get my meaning? Is it respectful? So does language have to have the same fixed rules? I would say, you know, if you look at the younger generations, uh, Gen Z, Gen Alpha, language is being evolved quicker probably than it has ever been. And new words, new phrases, you look at what's being added to the Oxford English Dictionary each year, some of the words and phrases, we're making up words through culture that convey a very more relevant meaning rather than have you used the right pronoun or noun or, or, or adverb or something in a sentence and where's the comma going to go? 
we're making ourselves understood without those those strict rules, which I appreciate can exclude people who are outside of that speak, you know, the older generation, the people who are woken with it. But are, are, are we actually damaging society here or are we just evolving at a high rate of knots uh, a new way of being? Yeah, I mean, I think the jury may be out on that one, but my personal view is that language is organic and it's supposed to change. Otherwise, we'd all be speaking Latin. So if you think about uh, Latin back in the day, uh, that became vulgar and vulgar became Italian. Now, no one stopped them evolving, but if, I don't know if you've ever did Latin, I did, and it had loads and loads of rules that don't exist anymore. So, of course, language is supposed to change. It's organic. I think the interest for me is not whether we have the right verb or grammar or spelling. It's the ability to express oneself so that one can get what one wants or so that one can get a message across. And I would say that, that written language is changing. The important thing, though, is how do people... Uh, transmit their message when they need to. And there are two key areas of this. So if you're in um, an organisation where what you write is vital, so accounting or legal, you're going to have to learn a particular language, which is more formal. And um, in English, we have to do that for those industries. If you're in tech or media, no, the language can be much more relaxed. And um, you don't have to have uh, particular grammatical rules to to express yourself, but you do have to express yourself at least orally, a u r or o r a. You have to you have to be able to say what's there for you, and I think that's one of the challenges. I've noticed that some of the younger people actually find it difficult to express their view, which young people do anyway. But often, what we used to find that um, say a seven to thirteen year old might struggle a bit with presenting their ideas, what were they thinking about, how did they feel about something, what was their view. And now we're finding that that age group has gone up a bit. So it's more like people who are late teenagers who still might be struggling with the words because they just haven't had to do it. They haven't had to rock up and talk to somebody and present something. They weren't in the debating society like their uncle or great uncle or aunt might have been when they were at school. So it's not that it's wrong or bad. It's that it's different and it's still evolving. And what you said about language, I think is fascinating because I can remember the first time I heard a millennial. So millennials are roughly aged 26 to 41 today. But first time I, I met a millennial who said, um, I've got to do a prezzo. And I was thinking, what's a prezzo? And it was a presentation. But what's very interesting is that if you're a younger generation, you probably wouldn't even call it a prezzo. You'd say, I've got a thing. And everybody else has to work out what the thing is. So it can be quite confusing. And what I'm discovering is that it's a cohort factor, that language is changing so much and new words are being developed so quickly that actually someone who's 13 might not speak exactly the same language as someone in the same family who's three years older. Because the world is moving so fast, they might be looking at a particular thing that they're interested in, which gives them a whole new language. And that's before we take ourselves out of the UK and look at other languages. So Take France, for example. France has two languages. It has the spoken language and then it has a business language, which is very formal. And that's been there for hundreds of years and, and closely guarded and protected. That's breaking down now. So the French are looking at it and going, what does that mean for our identity? If we've got young people going, well, we don't want to do this formal speak anymore. We don't want to write in a formal way. We actually want to use our spoken word in business. So it's far more cataclysmic for the French than it is for us in uh, the UK. So, um, you know, where I specialise, if you like. And one of my favourite things is in China, millennials are called uh, the people who eat their old. So they're not called millennials. It, it translates as the people who eat their old, because one of the things that uh, people worry about in China is that the youngest generations no longer have the trust and respect of their elders because of their social media and because of their interest in online activities, even though they may be different from the Western world, but they are changing. So older generations there are very worried about younger generations lacking this respect, which has been around for 
thousands of years. Um, the Confucius way, you know, being respectful, being trusting, having a good work ethic, believing when somebody is older that they have more value than you do who's younger. So, you know, all of these things can be taken in isolation. We're just talking to each other, to, to British people talking to one another. But think about that being replicated in different cultures, mm. different languages. It's a, it's a car crash out there. There's a lot changing. And that's why I find this so interesting. And so I'm so passionate about it, because I think that I'm kind of on the crest of some new history. And I'm wondering if in the next couple of years, we'll really look at our younger generations and say, they were the start of something new. And we don't even know exactly what that is yet. It's very exciting. Hmm. As you're talking, I was thinking about how a lot of our language is based on metaphors or similes that comes out of the culture we kind of grew up with you know of a certain generation you can guarantee that someone's going to quote monty python of another generation you're going to guarantee someone to relate it back to an episode of friends and etc etc so we can we can whatever we grew up with that becomes the popular culture and a lot of our phraseology metaphors similes are based on what we grew up with and and those things don't always translate between generations or between foreign cultures people from different parts of the world because there's no there's no reference and it always reminds me of the there's an episode of star trek the next generation where they met a species who only spoke in metaphors and similes so that their entire phraseology was around referencing a battle or an event or something in their culture that reminded them about respect or reminded them about love or something so it's all around these metaphors and these these similes and the universal translator on on the enterprise couldn't translate the metaphors because it had no reference to the history of this this culture uh so I, i'm often very mindful about the fact that if you're a tiktoker you're a snapchatter you're uh i grew up with grain chill i didn't grow up with tracy beaker but so how people interact with the world really does and, and that could be a barrier to communication as well and uh, yeah that creates a culture divide or a generational divide just by the culture you're talking about it's like if you meet a person that, that doesn't have a television um what can you talk about yeah <laughs> so absolutely somehow the television or film or cinema is so interlinked in our conversations a bit like food and the weather if you like yeah, and Netflix, Amazon Prime, Brickbox, Acorn, um, other platforms are available. There are all of those where they're creating new languages, but it's always been like that. It's always been like yeah. that, that yeah. every generation for probably tens of thousands of years have had their local cultural references, the stories that they handed down, the things that they believe. That's okay. I think that's an important thing. But the line in the sand that I mentioned with COVID is that this is the first time in a long time when a big change has started to happen that we're all aware of. Uh, of course, technology has been accelerating the rate of change, but COVID really forced that over the hill. You know, it's, it's reached the finish line. We're going to have hybrid work. We're going to have more um, online activity. We're going to have more people working from home, working from anywhere, working asynchronously. And I think that that's a good thing, but it is a, a big change. It's a big step change. It was coming, but it's been um, expanded and extended and accelerated in the same way, forgive me for saying this, that Brexit has made some changes or World War One or World War Two made some changes. There are these factors that come into the world that push things and they're never quite the same again. So I think that's one of the things that we need to be aware of. And, and of course, none of us has got the answer. I try and stand on a bit of a box and talk about things in terms of different generations. But most of what I can achieve is awareness. And then it's down to each organization to decide what they're going to do with that awareness. And some of them say, well, it's black and white, we have to do it like this. Others are saying, actually, maybe we should see that work is more transactional and that people are going to come and go. I've got some clients, for example, who are saying, well, we have now worked out from our data that our youngest talent comes in, works for us for three years, and they go somewhere else. So we can do three things with them. We can say, never darken our door again. 
or we can say we're going to treat you leaving as a sabbatical, come back with the next period of time and we'll take you. Or we can say, tell you what, go off and do whatever you want. But if you ever want to come back to us, that may be possible under a certain number of circumstances. And we might use you in a different way, perhaps as a contractor or a consultant. I love that. I love that way of being really kind of flexible and saying we could try different things. And I think when organisations do that, they are going to better manage this line in the sand that COVID has brought. I think if they expect things to go back to the way they were pre-March 2020 for the UK and pre-2020 for a lot of the world, then um, they're missing a trick. Yeah, that's so true when we talk about levers. The the old mentality is you're almost marched out the door the second you hint that you're looking for another opportunity. Uh, It's a bit, I always think it's like an angry divorce. The first thing they do is they take your car off you and they sort of take all your money out of you and they they kick you out the door, say, don't you ever darken these walls again and no one shall, from this point forward, utter thy name. You are deleted. And I think that's missing an opportunity here. It's, and as you say, it's about the alumni, it's about the, the, the returners, it's around the keep in touch stuff. Can we put you on our newsletter? Can we tell you about the opportunities that are coming up? Because we loved you when you worked here. Why wouldn't we love you again in the future when you've got more experience or more diverse things are going on in your life? And I think organizations miss the remarketing opportunity for reacquiring their best talent. They weren't able to hang on to them at that point in their life for various reasons. That doesn't mean to say that they won't come back. And I, th- I think that we missed an opportunity there. We invest all this money on you. And yeah. you know, we know the business uh, model is it's far better hanging on to what you've got than it is trying to get new in terms of business or whatever that may be. Absolutely. So if you've got a database of thousands of people who've left, yes, by all means, sort them by performance, by, by productivity, by whatever metric you want to do. But just keep remarketing those. Because that's what you were doing in in, in the sales and marketing team. You remarket. So why aren't we doing that in talent acquisition as well? Absolutely. And it always totally frustrates me that we don't. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. And uh, some do come back. I mean, one of the key issues that we're finding now is that the youngest generations uh, make decisions based on money because they are poorer than we were at their age. And also they feel poorer and that's a, a state of mind. But if you feel poorer, no one can tell you you're not. So they really feel that they don't have enough money. And they were in the UK and most of Europe. It was Generation Z um, aged between 16 to 24 who were furloughed the most or, or, or bluntly lost their jobs. And so what that meant was, you know, they're going after money. And I think organisations need to know that they will be very likely to leave their organisation if they don't get the right money. And by the way, because these 16 to 24 year olds may not have the emotional emotional intelligence of a 50 year old they may jump for another job with more money and it's a crappier job but they still go for it thinking about the money and that's an opportunity for the organization to say look if you're not happy in six months come back don't be upset by behaviors that are like that because it's not personal and i think many uh older generations look at these activities of young people jumping ship or going after money and somehow judging them negatively when actually the circumstances that they're living in what's been happening to them in the past few years is the reason why they're jumping ship it's the reason why they're going after more money if you understand that and have the door open and keep the conversation going as you've intimated by being able to reconnect and say can we send you a newsletter you know do you want to let us know what you're doing do you want to come in and do a prezzo or a thing you know that would be that would be a lovely way to do it and i do talk to my clients about that a lot let's be realistic i when i was in my 20s and 30s i wanted more money uh, I was starting a family. Uh, one of us gave up work to have have the family. Uh, you've got pressures of income. You're trying to get a bigger house, bigger mortgage, another car with more seats. All the things you do when you're in your 20s and 30s about growth of your family, you need more money. And I, I, I remember very clearly being money orientated, not to the exclusion of opportunity. I wanted money and opportunity, not just money. So I, I don't think we should blame younger people. But also, you, you, you mentioned earlier that younger people are more connected. They're more willing to share what's going on in their lives with each other. They're also more vulnerable to poaching because they are connected on LinkedIn. People are now more accessible. Um, you've got the passive job market, the people who aren't looking, who, who could be open to an offer. And recruiters are stalking these people. 
in the, in the old days, it was just headhunters. They build this map of people and organizations. But now talent acquisition specialists and sources are building up a picture of your talent, your people, and proactively targeting people in organizations as well. So I, I think you have to treat people right, treat people fairly, and recognize people's worth. Because if you're not, somebody else will. And I, I, think, that, I think that's a good thing. That it's been an employer's market for too long, and I have to. See, and I think we've got a, a, a talent has power. We are artisans. We are creative. We are we have, we're giving a lot of ourselves. So I think it's great that the, the individuals have the power to demand they're treated fairly, not just a part of a cog. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think also that uh, things ebb and flow. Uh, at the moment, it's now going to be the employee that has a bit more power. And also the employee that says, look, either we're going to have a transaction, in which case I'm going to jump ship for more money, or we're going to have a transformation, in which case you are, as an employer, thinking about how to make my uh, employee experience as positive as possible, and I'll have a tendency to stay longer. And by the way, what I often say to my clients is, look, you've done the maths, you know, that it's going to cost you five to seven times more to get somebody new in. But you also know that jobs are no longer for life. That's that's 60, 70-year-olds who used to believe in jobs for life or take it, taking one job for 10, 20 years. That's just never going to happen again. But supposing you did the maths and thought, right, the data is showing us people jump ship after two and a half, three years. Supposing you could get another year or 18 months out of them. How much money would that save you? Why don't you think about it in those terms and stop thinking about it in terms of, you know, 20 years ago, it wasn't like that. Well, that was 20 years ago. Has there not been enough water under the bridge for us to recognize that things have changed and I think when organizations understand that they can do a different data set and go oh we can get another year 18 months out of them that's worth money and then there is also that kind of point at which I call a tipping point where if you keep somebody for a little longer there are more chances that they'll stay for even longer and they'll also tell you why they're unhappy whereas the first time they think about jumping ship they often don't have that transformational relationship which is going to glue them in place, that stickiness you mentioned. They don't have that. So really, it's about organisations being aware of how the world has changed and thinking about what they can do to get involved in it proactively and thinking about it in terms of it not being a 20-year career or 10-year career, but an extra year, 18 months, two years, and really seeing it as their responsibility and not just these young people are feckless and snowflakes and don't care about work. That's not true. Now, I, I, I completely support the idea of, of the multi-generational workplace because you need people operating at different speeds, different ambitions, different motivations. You see, you've got slow and steady, you've got fast and loose, all these various different personality types, reliable, salt-of-the-earth plodders, and then you need the, the, the go-getters. So you need the different personalities. And I think... And you couldn't narrow that down to a particular generation. You can't say, well, old people are slow, ploddy, young people are fast and loose. It, it goes across generations. But I, I think I see a lot of companies writing off people once you hit 50, 55. Yet they forget that those people have still got 10 good years in them, at least 10 good years in them, especially when we talk about hybrid, agile, remote type workforce. And as you said just now, the, the likelihood is they're more likely to be loyal. They're more likely to think, actually, if this works for me, I don't need to hop. I'm looking for something maybe to see me 10 years. So rather than taking a punt at someone who you know is going to be two and a half to three years, as, as we know about the, the, the tenure these days, you may look at someone and say, actually, they're a five-year investment. I can afford to train them. I can afford to invest opportunity into them or even give them a, a mid-career pivot into, into, a new, into a new opportunity. I see the skills. I see the value. I see their attributes. I can see they've got potential. I can invest in that knowing you've got 10 years of them. And I think that to a certain extent, some people do miss the trick there where they're, they're writing off people who are older thinking, well, we've only got t- they're going to retire soon. Yeah, but retirement is now 65, 70. Yeah, it's it's a, uh, another concern. I'm particularly passionate about ageism at both ends of the spectrum. So ageism for people who are very young, who can't get a job because they need experience, but they need experience to get the job. And they're the first out in any industrialised 
democratised society, the youngest people are the first ones to lose their job and the ones who have the least money and savings. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've still got this really, I think, terrible habit of organisations to see people who are getting... um, on in years, and that's anything after 50, as being past their sell-by date, and um, we should get rid of them. And they often say it's because they will cost us more money, which is true. They do cost more money. The chances are they're earning more. But also about them having uh, less to offer. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, I've just done a white paper for an organisation that deals with uh, legacy mainframe and also zero trust network access. And um, they have discovered that around 67% of uh, global data is still in the old-fashioned legacy mainframe systems. Well, guess who put those in? Baby boomers. Guess who knows about them? Baby boomers who are aged today between 58 and 76. And they are jumping ship in the time. Yeah, Fortran programmers. Yeah, exactly. And they're starting yeah. to jump ship it, during COVID in the UK. Um, some research has showed that the number of baby boomers leaving the tech industry is now something like one in ten, when it used to be one in twenty-five. So it's big numbers of baby boomers jumping ship because they'd had enough. They could just they could afford to retire, and then out goes that experience. And this particular white paper I was working on said, we we don't want that experience to go. We want it to come back. And I was saying, well, offer them consultancy, you know, offer them part-time work, ask them to come in and train younger generations how to understand and work with these legacy systems. So I think there's that as, you know, one element. And the other is about looking at young people and, and painting them all as being feckless and, you know, unable to understand things. If you get good training, you can understand as much as somebody who's 10 years older. Your only weakness might be around strategic thinking. And that often comes with age and emotional intelligence. But you can do everything else. You can be a magnificent operator. You can work well in a team. You do all sorts of things. So I think that ageism is there at both ends. And I've met clients and, you know, no names or pat drill, but I have met big clients where they write into people's contracts so that it's legal that they have to leave by the age of 60. Now, I don't know about you, but I know a number of people who are 60 who are hale and hearty, they're healthy, they're full of energy. Why should they have to stop work exactly at 60? It doesn't make any sense at all. They should be allowed to continue working. Like they have they have a line in the sand in these organisations. And it's old hat. It's, it's old fashioned. And at both ends of the spectrum, we need to have a lot more respect for people and look at them as an individual. And in fact, my passion would be that in terms of inclusion and diversity, what I'd love is for us to stop seeing gender or age or ethnicity or ability or orientation, but see Joe and Henry and people for who they are and not sort of say, you know, do you come here often? Where are you from originally? How old are you? And then make a value judgment about them, which is likely to be negative. Now, I know that that's a big job to do, but that's why I talk about ageism, because it really does exist. And part of it is lazy habit. It's always existed. So people kind of, um, you know, they inherit it as if they should um, have it exist today, but it doesn't need to exist today. And the other thing I think, remember, I don't try the exact statistic, but it's something like 80% of the jobs that will exist in 2030 haven't yet been invented or that or that in the last couple of years. So, And also eight, that means that 80% of the jobs we're doing today won't exist in, in 10 years' time or, or eight years' time. So we are looking at a churn of, of need and evolution. So we've got to look for people. And I always say we should be hiring hiring for potential, looking at learning quotient, LQ, adaptability quotient, uh, tenacity, uh, bounce back ability, all those kind of things are actually more more relevant in tomorrow's marketplace than what I did yesterday. Because what you did yesterday is already old. So unless you're you're transactionally processing. So I, I think organizations now need to look at the potential in people and train the need when you've got the right raw material. Yeah, it's more uh, training for skills rather than job roles. And I think that's definitely Mm. on the cusp as well. And I think one of the challenges is to recognise that 
organizations again need to look at how they put together those functions and roles because again it's for about 150 years there have been job roles you do this job and you have this description well why those things can change but again you know that's mindset to make them change you know at once I think it's going to take a, a bit of time to do it but I think it's definitely important to do and just to your point about new jobs that didn't exist um, there's a, a two jobs that I can think of that didn't exist in 2019 and came into effect by the end of 2020. One was a COVID compliance officer. Well, that didn't exist before. And the other one is an online concierge. And let me explain that to you. Um, I have two stepdaughters and they run a business which is all about performance. So it's singing, dancing, acting, uh, you know, jugglers, magicians, whatever you want for a cabaret or a show in a hotel or on a cruise ship or that sort of thing. That's the work they do. And they're singers and dancers themselves all live. That disappeared with COVID. And they joined a company while they were trying to pick up the uh, rubble of their business in 2020. They both joined a company where, because they're good looking and well turned out, they became online concierges. So if you imagine Zoom or something like that, other platforms are available, you might have 5,000 people coming to a virtual conference. And my girls will, will sit um, in a space with WhatsApp, text, telephone, email, chat box and sort out these people, put them into rooms, answer FAQs, have a chat with them, explain what's happening. It's a bit like a help desk, but it's online and it's a, an online concierge. And um, they earn shed loads of money uh, over doing this. And that job simply did not exist in 2019. So there you go. New jobs are coming. And having been part of virtual events, that background concierge or the glue is so important because in a physical event, you rely on the people going, oh, just down that corridor, oh, please now, lunch is over, that you need that. Yeah, as you say, you need that glue. You need that multi-platform. However you want to communicate with me, I'll deal with it and take it on and make it happen. Yeah. That's, exactly. That's really yeah. Good. yeah. Yeah, completely. All right, well, my my view of the future, uh, you know, future of work, for me, it's thinking like the the uber the delivery the that kind of mentality where we, we we create platforms that create work queues so if you're an uber driver you you open the app up and it says someone wants to be picked up i've got five stars you've got five stars i know this person's going to be good i can do you can trust me i can trust you let's go and deliver at the end of it i get paid what we agreed so if i'm a bookkeeper and i'm an accountant i'm a, I'm a whatever i do i can pick up an accounts reconciliation off of my queue, deliver that bit, bit of work, put it back and say completed. I I give the, the work I was given five stars. You give me five stars for completing it. I get paid. Meanwhile, I've got more work coming on more queues. So in this global online connected world, do I need a full-time job or do I need a work queue that I can pull stuff off when it suits me? And okay, okay that opens up a global market competition for different spaces. I appreciate there's a lot of challenges there to evolve into a, into a fair system but i think if we can involve work into queues into picking stuff up again have my own culture at home instead of commuting instead of being part of this work culture i've, I've built my community back to communities back to having family time back to volunteering going to my pub going to the village fate whatever i do i have my culture i have my work i get paid i get valued by my stars by my appraisals but then I have my downtime. And, I, and if I say, well, it's my kids' parties, I want to go and watch my kids play, whatever I want to do, I just put the queue down. So that, that's, I, I think that's you're my absolutely vision, that right. transactional yeah, I mean nature. Yeah, it's a fantastic vision, and I, I'm someone who absolutely agrees with that. And I would just gently point out that at the moment, that's 40% of the global workforce. So 60% of the global workforce don't have that luxury. They're on a shift yes. or yes. they're on a working pattern, and they have to take their breaks when they can. They can negotiate to get time off for the kids, but it's still pretty unchanged. So that's why I said I, I felt like the world of work is splintering a bit mm. because we've got these two communities anyway where 60% of people have to go out to work and it's very much like it was 100 years ago. And then we've got these new generations that you and I work in. So you and I can talk the same language because we're doing a lot of virtual work. We have queues uh, coming up and we're, we're in 
embracing that, but it's not going to be everybody. And it would be lovely to be a fly on the wall, wouldn't it, in a few years' time, say three years' time, and see how much of that has changed. Because we're starting to see some things that always traditionally face-to-face as changing. So, for example, um, I haven't seen a doctor for two years, but when I did my back in, you know, I had a bad back. Um, I had a video call with a doctor, and it was fantastic. You feel a bit weird sort of holding up your shirt and letting them look at your back online. But, hey, you know, it worked. Mm. And I think that there will be increasing numbers of um, industries and technologies and organizations making the move away from the traditional conventional model that's been around for hundreds of years. But I think it will still be there for a while. And so I think the future of work is still developing, if I could sum it up that way. Because one one thing I would like to say, and that is – I get people get cross with me when I say this, but I would like to see any kind of work as remaining a family. So if you think about the family that you've got, um, you've you've got children, you've probably had parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, that sort of thing. Same with me. If we're lucky enough, we've been brought up with grandparents, parents, children, aunts, uncles, whatever. I'm always the mad auntie. And I think that we need to see work in that way. It should be a family. So we're not worried about who's in the family. We're not judging them for their age, whether they're younger or older. We're seeing them as being a part of that family. Now that family may ebb and flow because people join the family and then leave the family. But I do like to talk about work as being a family. Otherwise it is totally transactional. I will have no loyalty to you. I'll go where the buck is. And when the buck's not there, I don't like it anymore. It's just going to be another transaction somewhere else. And I think work in many ways for many industries can still be a family. Talk to NHS workers. They'll tell you they're in a family. They'll tell you they all work together. And it didn't matter what age or shape they were. It was what job could they do? How could they help? How could they get stuck in and and support what was going on? So that's my hope. And maybe that's a bit visionary and maybe it's a bit silly, but I do believe it. Yeah. I think when you, when you, when you talk about your 60-40, 60%... Requires your your hands and fingers to be involved in the process, then I think that's definitely where the family concept comes in. You know, the, the culture. So for the forty percent where it is very transactional, very remote, very I, I log on onto the phone pad, I log onto my Teams, I, I do my piece of work, and I log off at the end of the day. So I think I think most definitely the sixty percent you're talking about the, the finger, fingers in the pie work. Yes, it needs to have that interaction, that safety, that that emotional connection, emotional intelligence. So completely agree with you, and uh, I like that as well because I, I I find that being a solopreneur, uh, working from home a lot, that I miss being part of something bigger. And I, I lack that belonging. I've got who do I high five with when it's going well? Who do I pour my heart out when it's going badly? And I've had to build my own friends network or professional friends network that we, that are quite willing to have me go, oh, one day or yay, another day. And they can do it to me as well. So I, I've built my own little sub network. But I think we do need that celebration and commiseration interaction with people. And I think that's something we, we've got to re-evolve, I think. Yeah, and I think we will re-evolve. I, I have an optimist, optimistic view of humans and human nature. And I believe that that people make the difference anyway. And that what's so lovely about the workplace is that maybe it's a different family. Maybe it's not the conventional family that we used to have, but it's still a family. And it's amazing how you can connect with somebody and become a friend quite quickly and they become part of your network or part of your family. So that's my hope, really. That's what I'm going to keep banging on about. And I think that hope, that desire and that prediction is an excellent place to uh, to call it a day today. Because, I mean, we've been chatting for over an hour and I could keep talking for another couple of hours. I'm sure you could as well. So, yes, thank you so much, Henry. I really appreciate your thoughts, your insights. And it's been a fascinating conversation. So how do people get hold of you? How can people find out more? Um, they can find out more by uh, Googling or um, other platforms are available, whatever you do for your search engine. If you search for Henry Rose Lee, H-E-N-R-Y, R-O-S-E-L-E-E, I actually come up first. If you search for Henry Lee, you get loads of people from China. But Henry Rose Lee, I will come up first. And I have a website, which is, I'm just going to read it because I always forget what it's called. It's a bit like your phone number, isn't it? Um, intergenerationalexpert.com. So it's intergenerationalexpert.com. 
uh, if you go there, you'll find everything and uh, you'll find you can also get on LinkedIn with Henry Rose Lee and also Facebook and Twitter. But uh, that should be fairly simple. But remember the Rose bit, because if you don't have Henry Rose Lee, you'll end up with loads of Chinese people called Henry. And they're, they're very interesting in their own right, but not not the Henry Rosely you're looking for. So there exactly. are other Henrys, other Henrys available. So we've got to use the right Henry this time. Yes. Brilliant. Um, if you are listening to this podcast right now and you, 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 you Google, you look up Henry on, on social media, please do drop Henry a line to say how much you've enjoyed or otherwise. Um, and, and, and thank her for her time. So it'd be really appreciated or, or leave a review on, uh, Apple Podcasts, if you could, yeah, tell us how how you love the show. That'd be fantastic. So, Henry, thank you so much, um, and a huge thank you to uh, you, the listeners, for tuning in and getting this far. So, please do subscribe to keep updated on future episodes of the Inclusion Bites podcast. That's B I T E S. Please tell your friends and colleagues, share the love. I've got a number of other exciting guests lined up that I'm sure you'll be really inspired by over the next few weeks and months, and of course. Maybe you'd like to be a guest yourself or you've got comments or suggestions. So please do email me joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to know you're out there and, uh, and tuning in. So finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood, and it's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.